Hello, you're watching another episode of Green New Perspectives podcast, a webcast series dedicated to sustainability. Today's episode is featuring Simon Skilabix, a co-founder and chief strategy officer of Handprint, a company that prefers to call itself Impact as a Service. So what does that mean? Um, as the world continues to face unprecedented environmental challenges, consumers are increasingly demanding that businesses take actions to mitigate their impact and contribute to solutions. So that's where Handprints come in. It's a platform that connects companies with impactful projects that align with their values. So from forestry and coral reef reconstruction to plastic removal, targeted education and disaster relief, Handprints offer a different range of initiatives that companies can support to make a tangible difference. Simon is also assistant professor of strategic management at Singapore Management University and he specializes in digital sustainability. So stay tuned as we talk to Simon about how to create a business that makes a difference in the world but is still a business and his experiences as an academic entrepreneur. So um, you're a professor at the Singapore University so can you tell us a little more about your background? Sure. So I, I'm originally from Belgium. I studied there and then I majored in business ethics and corporate social responsibility at Nottingham University in the UK, after which I went traveling for a year to South America, came back at the start really of the financial crisis in 2008, and I wanted to work in sustainability, which was very tricky. So I was unemployed or semi-employed for a year, worked in bars, and then I got a job in sustainability and innovation consulting, which I did for about two years. But I got really bored with the reality of consulting that I was experiencing, mainly that it just always allowed me to study a problem, never really in depth, and then you end up delivering a PowerPoint or, or a PDF, and then the project ends. And so this was kind of frustrating for me. And I decided that I wanted to do a PhD. So uh, just because I really wanted to have time to study problems that I was interested in in much more depth. And uh, after a couple of uh, failed attempts, I ended up going to Imperial College uh, back in the UK, in London, um, where I did my PhD with a professor called Jerry George, who's been my mentor for about 10 years. And um, about just under three years into my PhD, which was normally a four-year program, he told me that he was moving to Singapore and that I had to finish my PhD in the next six weeks instead of 14 months. And I said, sure, if that's really necessary. Um, so it wasn't really the plan, but then, um, yeah, I had to finish. So it was a very tough eight weeks, I think it took in the end. And, but he did tell me that if you do and you pass, uh, then uh, I will take you to Singapore if you want for a year and a half to uh, as a postdoctoral fellow. And so that happened. So I passed. We moved to Singapore. Um, I arrived here in, on the 17th of January 2015, so just over eight years ago now. And then I ended up liking it a lot. And then I was uh, lucky enough to become a professor here. So uh, I've joined as a faculty member at SMU in July 2016. And I have been ever since. And how is it going with sustainability in Singapore? 
it's getting a lot better. I remember in the first year that I was here, I had a variety of conversations with people in the sustainability space, um, various companies, uh, the large kind of the large businesses that exist here in Singapore. And I was kind of taken aback by the fact that the quality of conversation and the understanding at the business level of sustainability so this was then late 2015, early 2016, was significantly less advanced than the type of conversations I was having as a consultant in 2009, 2010, back in Belgium and the Netherlands. So that was a bit of a shock. But all has happened in the last eight years, and I think the, there's been a lot of progress. A lot of it has been inspired and pushed by the government. But now there are companies in Singapore uh, some large companies like CDL in property development, uh, DBS Bank, um, that are globally perceived to be some of the most kind of pioneering organizations in the field of sustainability. That doesn't mean there is not a lot of work to be done. There is, but yeah, baby steps. Yeah, something is happening. So how did you get involved in Handprint? Let's talk about that a little. Sure. So Handprint is a um, like a regeneration or climate tech, nature tech company that I co-founded at the end of 2019. It basically grew out of two different uh, things we did before. One was we, uh, Ryan and I, so Handprint is three founders, Ryan, Matthias, and, and, and myself, Simon. And so Ryan and I worked at SMU together. I had hired him um, fresh out of his PhD in environmental policy to come work with me on innovation in the natural world in Southeast Asia. And so we did this for about a year and a half, two years. And during that time, we co-founded a nonprofit organization called Global Mangrove Trust, which still exists. And the purpose of that organization was really to help small-scale mangrove restoration and conservation NGOs in Southeast and East and South Asia, uh, initially, especially Myanmar, was to help those kind of organizations access international climate financing. And we did a lot of work in that space, but mainly focusing on the development of technology for remote sensing. So using kind of satellite images to understand what is happening uh, in forests over time, as well as uh, blockchain technology to improve financial transparency. And after a couple of years, about two years into the existence of that nonprofit, we started working with Matthias, now our uh, co-founder and CEO, on a grant proposal to get access to funding from the Singapore and French governments to improve our um, blockchain technology. Now, we had a couple of partners in France and in Singapore for this grant proposal, but eventually that grant proposal didn't go anywhere uh, due to a variety of reasons. But we did realize that um, while working on this, that we really liked working together. And Matthias convinced us to set up a social enterprise, which became Handprint, um, using some of the technology we developed at Global Mangrove Trust, but with a clearer commercial purpose right which for the ngo of course was less the case and yeah we jumped at it and set the company up at the end of 2019 just before the covid pandemic hit and yeah three years how did, later, it, 
your life. Yeah. And how did it, did it work during the pandemic? Was it a good time for you and the company or was it challenging? So it wasn't, I think it was both. So the, the benefit of the pandemic and especially in the beginning here in Singapore, while, so Matthias and I were living in Singapore, Ryan was living in Bangkok. Um, the benefit was that we literally had nothing else to do. I mean, we, we had our, I had my day job, um, Ryan and I were still managing GMT, but there was no social life. We were at what is known here in Singapore as the circuit breaker, basically in lockdown. So for the first couple of months, there was really not much going on outside of potentially working. And so we did a lot of hard work in the beginning. And then we decided as a team that what we should be focusing on because of this pandemic was e-commerce. So initially when we, when we started the company, we didn't really know which product we were going to develop. We knew we wanted to do something in, uh, to further uh, mangrove restoration uh, that, that we kind of adopted that perspective from GMT, uh, Global Mangrove Trust. And we knew we wanted to create some kind of digital platform that would make it easier for someone, either a company or, or an individual, to basically plant trees and contribute to reforestation. And because of the pandemic, we decided that we probably should start by creating a tool that enables companies to integrate mangrove restoration into their transactions, into their sales. Um, and that was yeah, inspired by the pandemic. We built this, we learned a lot, we realized it's very hard to make a scaling business out of that, but we build a lot of capabilities that are still pretty essential to what Handprint is doing now. And yeah, so was it a bad thing? I think it was a mixed blessing. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same. But um, you're working with companies. So um, how do you feel? Um, have they been um, good in their attempts to lessen their um, adverse effects on the earth during the past 10 years? Or you think they have plenty of challenges to overcome at the moment? Mildly speaking. <laughs> I mean, overall, I would say I am very disappointed and the progress, if any, that has been made when it comes to environment, especially environmental sustainability, which is much more my area than the other aspects of kind of governance and social. But when it comes to environmental sustainability, the progress that has been made has been grossly insufficient. This is the unfortunate reality. We are in a situation now, 2023, where the planetary boundaries for climate change and for biodiversity loss and for a variety of other things in terms of um, like um, nitrous uh, in, the, in, the, in the soils and so are, are all being transgressed against. And I think... This was entirely avoidable. Back in 1989, when all countries and, and companies globally kind of came together in Montreal to sign what is known as the Montreal Protocol to halt the uh, emissions of uh, CFCs, uh, which were pretty much singularly responsible for the hole in the ozone layer, we, we've shown that as a global community, we could come together um, make a difficult decision and restrain environmental pollution 
in a way that has proven to be very effective. I think the Montreal Protocol is still the most effective and most successful environmental global agreement that we've ever reached. I'd say more successful than Kyoto and, and the Paris Accord. And in the same year, 1989, we were very close to signing a global agreement on carbon emissions as well. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And there is a fantastic and very, very long New York Times article about how this exactly failed, either New York Times or the New Yorker. And and yeah, then as a consequence, we ended up not making any decisions. And it took until 1997 uh, before the Kyoto Protocol came into being. And then many, many years later in 2015, the Paris Accord. And I think if we look at that time as a wasted opportunity, then yeah, uh, it undoubtedly was. Now, of course, we're not here to reminisce about everything that went wrong in the past. I think the the job of entrepreneurs and the job of educators as well, and, and everyone really, is to remain cautiously optimistic. And I think that there is still room for optimism and there is still a chance, there's still a good chance that we can avert uh, can avoid the worst of climate change. If we look, for instance, at the change in projections of the IPCC, right? so the International Panel on Climate Change, over the last 10 years, we've seen two things. Uh, one is that uh, the IPCC has consistently underestimated the velocity with which climate change is happening. Um, that is scary, and that's and that basically means that the acceleration of the the temperature increase on the on on planet Earth, as well as um, the volume of carbon emissions uh, in the atmosphere, um, and so the carbon concentration has gone up faster than the IPCC predicted. But on the other hand, and that is the positive note, is that we've also seen that based on mainly the policies that have been put in place in the last couple of years, that the forecasted path of where we are going to end up with under a variety of policy scenarios um, has petered off and so has become a little bit flatter and has also narrowed in width, which means that we have a better understanding now of uh, given where we are now or where at least policy has decided that we should be, um, it looks like we are much more likely to avoid truly catastrophic consequences in terms of like ab like an above four degree uh, temperature increase scenario now seems increasingly unlikely. So that is the main positive. I think there is an enormous amount of additional work that companies will need to do, that governments will need to do, and unavoidably at some point, probably, hopefully, I would say sooner rather than later, that will mean that there are going to be, at least temporarily, some limitations on our consumption behavior um, because that's just going to be necessary if we're going to yeah, stay within reach of that elusive 1.5 degree goal. Do you think we're going to... Sorry? Do you think we're going to stay within the 1.5 degree goal? Based on the latest forecasts, I think it's very challenging. It's probably a little bit unlikely. But 
there is one thing I think that still gives me hope. And that is most of the forecast when it comes to um, these, these, these kind of mathematical complex uh, climate models are strongly anchored in a singular mentality of sustainability as reducing negative negative impact. Um, like reduce carbon emissions, eliminate carbon emissions from productive and in, industrial production and 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 all of the, and the things that come with that. That is the decarbonization of energy and all of those things. Um, and I think we're pretty good at estimating what the consequences of this will be. Right? What we are less good at is understanding the uh, the resilience and the feedback loops of uh, natural ecosystems. And, and that's a double-edged sword. So on the one side, it is very clear that if we hit certain tipping points, which we don't really know where they are, um, then the, so what we could face very suddenly is a massive acceleration of climate change, right? So if we would get a, if we would reach a tipping point where let's say specific parts of the Arctic start melting or of Greenland, then the methane stored in the ice would suddenly be released. And I mean, we would blow um, the 1.5 degree things like out of the water. And suddenly we would go to a greenhouse gas concentration that is significantly higher than we are now. So that is the big risk with these tipping points. There can be negative feedback loops. And if we hit them, it's going to be very hard to reverse them in the period, in the lifespan of a normal human being. Um, so then we're looking really at very long-term change and very long-term challenges. On the other hand, the ability of natural ecosystems to positively surprise us is also still there. And this is really the area where I am relentlessly optimistic that by pursuing much more aggressively the regeneration of the planet, both on land as well as in the water, um, we can achieve um, positive feedback loops that will have significantly, like I would say that we will have almost unforeseen and surprising uh, positive effects on how the the planet's um, kind of ecosystem as a whole is evolving. And so just one example, I think that's, that's an interesting one and that's not very often heard of. So everybody kind of knows about the fact that like, oh yeah, planting trees can potentially be very good for the planet because trees absorb carbon, they provide natural habitat, uh, biodiversity and so, and, and this is great, right? And I'm, and I'm a big fan of reforestation if done well, um, which is a big if because very often it's not done very well. But we've also learned recently that a, lo a lot of um, carbon sequestration can actually happen much more effectively in the ocean. So kelp as, a, as an alternative to reforestation, kelp is like a, like a big seaweed, um, absorbs much more carbon, much faster. Plus we can use it as animal feed. And there are uniquely weird benefits to doing so. So if you give kelp, uh, you grow kelp in a commercial kind of underwater um, uh, in the ocean, like an underwater farm in the ocean, then it absorbs a lot of carbon. That's great. We like that. You can use it to feed cows, which means you can take land that we're currently using to create feedstock 
um, and repurpose it potentially and rewild that and give that back to nature, which is great. But moreover, by feeding the cows with kelp, um, you reduce their methane emissions. And cows are incredible, probably the biggest source of methane emissions on the planet, and which is one of the reasons why eating cow meat is so bad for the planet, because of the methane emissions associated um, with cows burping and farting. That's just the way it is. But if you give them this kelp as a feedstock, then they reduce their methane emissions dramatically. So there are interesting kind of positive um, feedback loops that we can achieve. Similarly, uh, We've discovered that whales are an incredibly important animal in the fight against climate change because whales absorb heaps and heaps of carbon in their bones as they grow. And then eventually when they die, they normally will sink to the bottom of the ocean and store the carbon there uh, for a longer time period. That is um, already great. But more importantly, whales are... Um, what is known as keystone species in the oceanic ecosystem. Um, and that is because they um, move the krill that exists in the ocean uh, through various oceanic layers. And krill is really the primary source of carbon absorption in the oceans. And if you have more whales, you will have more krill. And if you have more krill, more carbon will be removed from... Um, krill and plankton, right? And so and more uh, carbon will be absorbed uh, by the oceans and as then the whales will eat this and so you create this positive cycle. So there are lots of those things that we have discovered. We don't necessarily know yet how to make those that new knowledge, that reasonably new knowledge, how to make that actionable from a climate change perspective. But I think there is, uh, yeah, there's plenty of room for human ingenuity to work with nature in order to, uh, yeah, improve our chances of having a very long and healthy life on this planet for the next thousands of generations. Yeah, I think that February 19 was the World Whale Day. <laughs> um, so yeah, 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 yeah. So we can, you know, um, ask people to uh, explore more um, about these amazing animals. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you said that you were disappointed the, uh, in the way the, the um, businesses are doing um, environmental progress. But if you look uh, around you, you, you'd be thinking that we're living in a sustainable world because of the advertisements, because of the carbon offsetting. So I wanted to, feel, to, to, to ask you, how do you feel about greenwashing and especially about greenwashing in the carbon offsetting space because well, handprint is operating there? Um, I will answer this question as soon as possible, but I need to plug in my... Uh, apparently, I have plugged in my charger in the room. <laughs> in the room hall. <laughs> um, okay, my phone, my computer is almost dying. Um, so, are you still there? Yeah, 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 I'm here, I'm here. So, my screen There's is no down. Problem. All right, so, how do I feel about greenwashing? Um, in general, I think that, I mean, I have a controversial opinion on greenwashing where um, I'm actually in favor of greenwashing. And, and I, not because I think it's good that companies uh, say things about, oh, we are very, very socially or environmentally responsible. While it's not true, that's obviously not good. But the fact that companies want to do this shows 
unequivocally that there is consumer and customer demand for more sustainable products. That's one thing. So the fact that the practice exists proves that actually being more sustainable or at least appearing more sustainable um, is, is valuable. Secondly, given the world we live in where any kind of little nugget of newsworthy gossip and information will travel through the internet at light speed and will reach anyone who's interested um, very quickly, it has become increasingly hard for companies to hide bad behavior, right? This is definitely true at the social level. Um, it's also increasingly true at the environmental level, right? So uh, and let's, let's look at a very simple example where you, if companies will make claims about their, um, their carbon emissions, especially like let's say energy companies and so, um, we now can have like independent organizations using satellite data can actually verify whether these claims are real or not. And if you get caught lying, then increasingly there are strong repercussions. And right? so there might be legal repercussions, um, especially as different countries, US, uh, Europe, the, even China, um, are moving towards mandatory disclosures of ESG performance, so environmental, social, and governance performance. Uh, China is not mandatory yet, but they are moving in this direction as well. And many other countries are uh, following suit. We see the work being done by the task force for um, climate-related disclosures and the task force for nature-related disclosures. So we see an increasing tendency to formalize the reporting requirements of uh, companies' behavior. And what's interesting, if you look at, for instance, um, specifically what's happening in the US, um, the SEC has basically... Um, in its latest guidance, has told companies, and this is for publicly listed companies, that they will need to have their emissions externally verified by an auditor. Now, that's going to be very costly, but it also will make, again, it's going to make those claims, uh, the false greenwashing claims, harder. And I think the, the, the benefit that I see there is that when companies make these claims and they're not based on reality or they are based on reality, but they are very kind of shaky, right? Then um, the likelihood that they will face some kind of public outcry for this is very, is increasing rapidly with digitization, with uh, the, the global kind of penetration of the internet and, and with increasing awareness from uh, different customers. And so I believe that that practice as long as it remains appealing, just continues to prove that there is a strong appeal for more sustainable practices and companies that get called out will need to change or they will lose their, um, yeah, their ability to serve their customers because their customers are just going to walk away. If you, just to give like another kind of piece of information there, there recently was a study done in the UK on... Um, um, called unconscious quitting, right? So to what extent are employees uh, willing to, or actually leaving their job because their employer, the company they work for, um, is not aligned with their values? 
this is a reasonably recent phenomenon, and it's really it's really reached massive scale. I think there were more than fifty percent of people in the UK said, "Yeah, I would quit. I would quit my job, or I am quitting my job because I don't think the company that we uh, that I'm working for has sufficient uh, does sufficient in terms of environment, does care enough about climate change." So there. I see lots of those trends can be these trends at the employee level and these trends at the customer level are really interacting. And, I, and so that's why I think that the greenwashing in itself um, actually may have some positive effects. Now, there are negative effects, of course, if company, if individuals are trick, uh, tricked into believing that a company is more sustainable, that may obviously also affect their purchasing decision. That's not ideal. Um, and But overall... I'm someone of the, the belief that this may actually be a positive thing. So you, you think like if they're doing it, they're going to get caught eventually. So they're going to have uh, repercussions, but um, it takes a long time, I'd say, because <laughs> they're doing it for a long time without repercussions. And that's the problem with greenwashing. No, and that is that's absolutely true. And I think it maybe, and this is of course the major, major counter argument to my point. Like companies can get away with it for a long time, and um, but it's it, one of the complexities there with greenwashing is also that it is very hard to define what it really is because it basically really relates to perception, right? If and, and the simple uh, ex example here, if, if, if I'm an individual and I plant 100 trees every month or I pay for the planting of 100 trees every month, then I'm potentially a very kind of sustainable and green person. Um, if, I don't know, Chevron, the oil company does the same and then builds an advertising campaign around we're planting 100 trees every month, they are greenwashing. Fundamentally, at the level of the ecosystem, the two actions are equivalent, right? The eco, uh, let's say the planet doesn't care about who does what for what reason, yeah, which is important. Um, but the messaging is very different. And the scale of, at which one expects an organization, let's say like Chevron or, or ExxonMobil or something, to do something would be very different. And so this is why I think greenwashing is very complex because right now uh, we've had this conversation recently with with uh, one of our prospects in France. Um, they read this article about um, carbon credits being kind of discredited um, as an outcome of some research done by by the Guardian and a variety of other groups. And as a consequence, they said like, "Oh, we've read this article because people have limited understanding of what exactly has happened there and like all of the intricacies of uh, of this study." Their kind of takeaway is we can't plant trees anymore because that's greenwashing. Right? And that's fundamentally the wrong takeaway. So I think there are um, yeah, there are real risks with um, with kind of exposure. There are real risks with trying to say this is good and this is bad. Many things are gray. And I um, yeah, I'm I'm still kind of in the middle of figuring out how I feel about this myself. There, unfortunately, there is no standard that has been set to say, like, if you're doing this, then you can make legitimate claims about being 
maybe a sustainable organization or a regenerative organization. And we see there are voluntary systems like the 1% for the planet or um, similar initiatives around the world. But no, there is no kind of global agreement. And as a consequence, brands, especially brands that are very consumer facing, are always at risk of being accused of this. Um, and that actually, that, that fear um, might actually also create a lot of uh, paralysis. Saying like, rather than risking something and then not doing enough, we might prefer to stay in the background and not do anything. Because the risk of being accused of greenwashing is right, and then the consequences of that is probably worse than um, nobody talking about you. So your slogan, slogan in the handprint tech is sustainability pays off. So um, how does the company achieve this? So what handprint does is, is, is fundamentally different from what many of the companies in sustainability do, right? So most companies when we look at like sustainability right now focus on reducing negative impact. So yeah, reduce your emissions, reduce your energy consumption, reduce your material waste, all of those things. And basically, if the focus is reduction or elimination, then the direct consequence of this tends to be cost savings, right? which is very clear how it pays off. So what Hempring does is quite different because we are actually telling companies that they should incur additional costs. Um, but that doing so is going to increase their strategic growth uh, success or their, their kind of KPIs. And so what we're, for instance, doing and what we've shown is that depending on the type of industry or in the, the type of uh, organization you are, if you embed positive impact in the interaction you have with your stakeholders, with your key stakeholders, you can actually improve your business outcomes. So let me give some concrete examples. So we've um, we created this plugin for e-commerce, as I mentioned, this is where we started. And we've tested with one of our clients in Australia that implementing this plugin and demonstrating to the customer at the moment that they're making a purchase. So, oh, by the way, if you're buying this, we are planting a tree. That simple act increased their sales by 16%, right? So give and and this is baffling. I mean, that result was surprisingly high um, and we did this with Google, so it's pretty reliable result. Um, so, but an increase in sales for by 16% when you're A-B testing a new feature, anyone who's in e-commerce will know that that is an incredibly high effect, right? So this was a key kind of, proof of concept that hey there is something you can do that will actually increase sales we're now exploring in collaboration with another company whether um also in e-commerce space whether you can incentivize individuals to register their email address which is a key thing for future marketing um, by giving them impact rather than discounts and so discounts are the most common thing, like, oh, you get 15% discount if you register and the first item bought. But what if you say you get two trees um, or one tree or a coral or two hours of education, whatever, like some kind of positive impact. So this is now an experiment we're running. We'll see what that gives. Um, we've 
also seen in advertising space that we can't disclose the company yet. So we've done um, a campaign where we embedded impacts in the advertising unit. So basically under the ad that is uh, pushed to a variety of uh, news sites and so um, with our partner Teats, um, the advertiser, the brand, uh, was able to put this message that this ad was going to support uh, elderly people um, getting access to food um, in in Japan. And so what we found in doing so is that creating this little banner underneath the ad had a very strong and positive effect on brand recall, on attention, on kind of the, the, the value of the brand in Japan uh, increased. And so we measured all of this, uh, as well as on click-through rates, like everything you care about in advertising basically improved significantly likened to an ordinary campaign. So again, clear business value. Then in the, the banking space, I think the most successful example here is Alipay. So the the Chinese uh, mobile payments app um, that back in 2016 created uh, AntForest, a simple forestry tool that enabled their users, about 500, 700 million people in China that are using Alipay, um, to earn energy points if they were engaged in a variety of behaviors that were typically both considered to be sustainable, but also very strategically aligned with what Alipay was doing. So you could earn energy points for um, like paying your bills online through Alipay or taking the bus instead of driving to work or walking. Because of course, if you walk, then Alipay is allowed to track your movement and that's valuable data. So loads of those uh, maybe more or less insidious things that enabled Alipay to gain a lot of information about you, but you were rewarded with energy points. And once you collected enough energy points, you could plant a virtual tree. And once you cared for your virtual tree by virtually watering it and all of that, Alipay would actually plant a tree uh, in somewhere in the, in the Mahobi Desert in China. Um, and it's the most successful reforestation project in the world, run by a company. And what's incredible about it is that it's been years now that this little feature within Alipay uh, has uh, been created. And when I talk to my Chinese students, all of them, I've, I still haven't found a single exception, all of them use it. Mm-hmm. All of them check it every day. And it's the first thing they do in the morning because Alipay very cleverly gamified the system so that if you, you're earning energy points, on, let's say on a Monday, and if you don't claim them Tuesday morning, I think before 7.30 or 8 a.m., like really early, then your friends can steal your points. So they gamify it. They force attention on the app, strategically very clever, um, So it, which means that individuals are doing this on a daily basis, and it takes up to a year before they earn enough energy points on average for Alipay to plant a tree. So the financial reward in terms of creating a positive environmental impact is extremely low and the effort is extremely high and still it's extremely successful. So I really believe that um, yeah, companies can heed the lessons of how do we gamify and um, use customer engagement to create kind of desirable uh, consumer 
actions um, or non-consumption actions. There is so much to be done, and this is possible in the in the, in the banking industry in general, in insurance, um, in um, yeah, in so many different industries where that kind of the knowledge of behavioral economics and this idea of like how do we nudge people to making the right choices um, can be implemented successfully and people maybe more than we expect and i think this is especially true in the us and in europe and coming in asia and also definitely true in australia um, people are willing to make small regular efforts for the collective good uh, and i think that is something that companies really need to seize on in order to achieve these environmental goals. And that's really, this is kind of the essence of what Handprint is trying to do with all of our clients. How do we find that KPI that makes you successful? How do we embed impact into that KPI? And if that KPI is consumer facing or, or partner facing or employee facing, then you're going to see the positive, the positive consequences for your business from doing so. Um. I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um, you're obviously in this carbon offsetting space, business space, and you're very active on social media and you regularly post blogs, videos, um, and talk about the problem of car carbon tunnel vision. Um, so can you talk a bit about that, uh, about the content that you're producing and well, the point of view on this issue? Sure. So I think as an entrepreneur or as a, uh, yeah, I probably have to say that I'm an entrepreneur now. It's still weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, being active on LinkedIn is very useful, right? So it can create a lot of attention. Um, you can meet, of course, kindred spirits. And and sometimes, if you're very lucky, you can do something that kind of touches the right nerve and goes, and goes viral. And so one of the things that's really kind of at the essence of Handprint is that while we started out as an organization that was focused specifically on mangrove restoration, we've kind of uh, expanded our scope into any type of positive impact that's aligned with sustainable development. And one of the things we realized and that in the kind of current sustainability narrative, that the only currency companies really understand is carbon. Right. And this leads to a lot of problems. Problem number one is that biodiversity from an environmental aspect is overlooked. And as a smarter person than me once said, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name, is if we look at climate change as an existential threat, it is because it will force us, if climate change would really start becoming even more problematic than it already is, it will force us to change the way we organize human life. Um, travel um, will become more difficult with all environmental disasters, um, might become much more costly, the way we produce energy. Like it's going to force us to, to change the way we organize human life, right? Um, and maybe non-human life. But the biodiversity crisis, if we look at that as an existential crisis, it's not about changing the way we organize. It is fundamentally changing or challenging the fact that we are alive. So it's in many ways, the biodiversity crisis, although right now it's been receiving much more attention, is a much more serious existential threat to humanity 
to human life as we know it than climate change. And the problem of carbon tunnel vision is that right now, companies might be, and, and, and countries, uh, might be forced into making a trade-off that is about typically about like, okay, is it more environmental or is it more kind of economic? Um, but the reality is that, first of all, that trade-off is false, right? There is no economic growth without a planet. So the question is always like, if people say like, oh, but we have to balance these things, it's like, no, you don't have to balance. There is, it's very clear that we can't have economic growth in a world where there is no air to breathe, right? Or where there's no clean air or where everyone is sick because of um, air pollution. And so that, that kind of balancing logic requires two systems to be independent, not one system, which is the economic system, to be entirely dependent on the environmental system. So we have to realize that. But we have to realize as well that when it comes to making decisions, um, purely considering the carbon avoidance or the carbon sequestration potential at the expense of the biodiversity potential might be a short-term patch that eventually leads to much more bleeding. So, and one kind of key example here that's, that's easy enough to understand is that we can, I mean, we know, for instance, that um, bamboo is a very fast-growing tree, which is useful because it means it absorbs carbon very quickly. Um, does that mean that it would make sense to do every reforestation project in the world globally with bamboo? From a carbon perspective, you might argue yes. But from an ecosystem perspective, from a biodiversity perspective, this would be absolutely terrible. Um, and there are many reasons for this, but first of all, you don't necessarily want to introduce non-native species in areas where they're, they're they, they are not native because this creates harm to uh, the local biomes. Um, secondly, bamboo might be good at capturing carbon, but it might not be very good at storing carbon in the long run. Um, mangroves are much better at this because they store a lot of carbon in the soils. Um, and of course, if you want to, if, and so as a consequence, we, we already need to make those decisions saying like, okay, recreating forests from a man-made perspective, which is what we need to do right now. We know that if we compare a man-made forest to an organically grown, kind of spontaneously uh, growing forest, that the man-made forest absorbs a lot less carbon. So even just from the carbon perspective, we know we are not as good as nature itself as creating a biodiverse, rich ecosystem that leads to sufficient amount or the same amount of carbon sequestration. So the the carbon tunnel vision that is kind of very present in sustainability debates, I think poses, uh, might be a short-term solution, but in reality creates a lot of long-term liabilities. And so when talking about um, kind of climate change, we really should be very considerate about that about nature, like nature in general as well, and recognize that the way forward is not by purely thinking about what are, what are my carbon emissions and how do I reduce them, but is thinking about what is my social uh, capital, what is my human capital, what is my intellectual capital, what's my financial capital. And 
what is my natural capital? Right? And we need to start thinking about organizations, uh, whether they're for-profit or non-profit, as actors that have a responsibility towards the creation and preservation of natural capital in the same way that they have a responsibility towards the creation and preservation of financial, human, intellectual, and social capital. And if we get to that point, then we're going to be much closer to a world that we can uh, equitably enjoy um, with all human beings. Simon, for the end, since we don't have much time left, um, I wanted to ask you two questions. They're fairly simple. Um, as a professor, what would you advise your students um, and your young professionals uh, who are interested in sustainability and climate change? And what's the future of handprint tech? Okay, so as a professor, my advice would be, if you're interested in sustainability, get into the space. Um, you don't necessarily need a lot of experience. Of course, it's useful. Um, everything you need to know, you can probably learn on the internet. Uh, it's without, a, I would say, maybe in competition with kind of AI and maybe even still blockchain, it is the most exciting space to be in right now. It is where all of the big companies are. It is where all of the VCs are. If you think about like venture capital and you want to be an entrepreneur, and then venture capitalists are basically people who don't want to grow old and they want to hang out with the cool kids. Right now, all the cool kids are in climate tech, nature tech, AI, blockchain. So if you're on that intersection, you're going to meet with all of the all of those people. So I think it's a and it's a super exciting time to be in the space. It's frustrating. It can be hard work, um, but I'd highly recommend anyone that is interested, like. If you want to come and do an internship, we won't pay you. But if you want to get experience, uh, feel free to reach out and um, we'll try and uh, uh, facilitate that wherever you are in the world. Um, doesn't matter. So, yeah, I, I always tell my students, it, it's the most exciting area. There's so much happening. There's so much need for more talent uh, and for more knowledge and for more ideas. So, yeah, everyone is welcome in this space. And then where do I see the future for Handprint? Um, well. As a startup, you're always um, kind of in between greatness and complete annihilation and demise. So we're still in that in that uh, space. So I I'm very hopeful. I think there is there's a lot of positive signals from the market that we are on the right track. It remains a very hard market to be in as well. Um, convincing companies, especially larger companies, to experiment with these new ways of thinking, which we kind of summarize under regenerative strategy rather than kind of sustainability, um, remains hard, especially in this day and age where we are, of course, still um, kind of reeling from a global, um, well, from the war in Ukraine, where we still have a lot of kind of inter uh, issues with interest rates, which is um, interest rates going up. Um, after the after the COVID pandemic, which leads to higher costs of capital and as a consequence reduced venture capital investment and in general just reduced investment. And so all of those things are still uh, pretty important. But I think the future for Handprint is bright. We are uh, launching our banking products, uh, which we're really bullish on. Um, this will enable any bank in the world to issue a bank card that 
tops up for the planet or that rewards its customers for making specific green um, uh, behaviors or for saving money or whatever. Uh, banks can design their own logic. Um, I think this is a really exciting product. Um, we are, uh, yeah, we're advancing our, our voucher capabilities so that companies can hand out impact vouchers to their employees or other stakeholders and uh, empower those people to actually choose the types of impact, uh, positive impact they want to contribute to. Uh, that has very valuable kind of engagement benefits, but also learning. Um, so what we're trying to kind of stimulate is this idea that companies should crowdsource their CSR strategy. It shouldn't be decided um, by the CSR manager or the sustainability manager um, on, on his or her own, especially because so many companies are struggling with engaging their employees in their wider sustainability story. So that's very exciting. And then, yeah, I think the, 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 the monitoring capabilities that we've developed and that we are developing with a variety of partners when it comes to reforestation, coral reef reconstruction, uh, biodiversity assessments um, are also very exciting. And we, we, re we realized that even the, the largest companies are really struggling with this. And so we had a conversation recently with a large company, I'm not gonna name them, um, but they are, um, they're using a lot of wood products. And so they manage loads and loads of forests. And when I, when we're talking to the people in charge of that process, we ask them, how do you collect data about the state of change in your forests? And they told me they're on computers in Excels of, different people and say, so, but how do you know the state of every forest? And like, oh no, no, we don't. And so the ability to collect data at scale uh, and kind of streamline and homogenize data um, to make it easily accessible, to make it easily auditable is I think something that Handprint has developed and kind of unknowingly um, we've realized that this is a massive problem that large companies have and that we can help them solve when it comes to their um, kind of corporate philanthropy or their CSR in general. So yeah, I'm really hopeful about um, those capabilities that they're going to find their way into the market and that by the end of the year, we'll have a successful series A launch and that will, uh, I mean, our big goal is to um, increase our, impact in such a way that at some point, uh, hopefully in the next two or three years, maybe it's a bit optimistic, let's say five years, <laughs> Hampering becomes a gigacorn, which would mean an organization that removes more than one gigaton of carbon from the atmosphere through its operations. Um, and we want to find some equivalent terms for biodiversity protection and for social impact creation. We haven't found those yet. So if your listeners have any idea, please let us know. Um, but um, yeah, we're hoping to yeah, massively increase our handprint in the world as an organization. And if we can do that, then yeah, we will be successful. And that's great. But then also the planet and all of its inhabitants will be better off. And that's probably yeah. even more important. <laughs> well, Simon, thank you a lot. Um, keep up with the good work and your great thought leadership. I really love your articles. So, um, <laughs> <Thanks so much. laughs> thank <time>. you again. <laughs> it was my pleasure, Dunja.
Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and gained some valuable insights. Um, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button um, and leave a comment or a review. We would really appreciate that. Um, we appreciate your support and we're looking forward to having you join us again next time. So until then, take care and keep learning.